Hey, everybody, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here tonight with Trevor. How you feeling, Trevor? I'm good. I'm feeling juiced. How you feeling, Mark? I'm feeling the opposite. I'm zombie mode. Damn. Yeah, it's been hard to read lately because <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I've been, you know, my daughter's like sleep training and stuff. And You've been fathering a child. Yeah, it's hard to like catch time to read. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why this <laughs> podcast is, uh, you know, coming out late, late relative late. to the promises that we sometimes make. <laughs> Don't make promises you can't keep. Yeah. We do that but, all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's a new year, though. So, you know, with that comes like, I'm going to do this exactly. type of attitude. So, uh, and that's exactly what I brought today for the intro. It's mostly advice for myself because you've been, you know, crushing me lately in the reading category. Is that true or is it just a facade? It is true, but there are okay. some caveats. Okay. Like what? Well, it kind of feeds into the idea that we've uh, discussed about changing the format of the podcast, but there there are some caveats, but uh, I definitely have been reading a decent amount, more than usual. Okay. I'm jealous. It's like yes. that peace and quiet. I got that like dad thing where I'm going to like start, have to start like keeping books in the like bathroom or something and just hang out there for like an hour. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you go pick up a uh, carton of milk and you're gone for no, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. For, for kind of trying to kickstart and get off to, uh, you know, get off on the, on the right foot for 2022. I found an article. It's an article on inc.com like inc.com. Oh, okay. But it, it itself borrows from an article from the financial times that references some other article from some <laughs> guy like so i don't feel bad just reading this because it's been stolen like four times over right um but apparently there's like uh there's like a super reader slash reviewer out there probably some other has some other role too but uh someone named tyler cohen who claims to like read up to five books a night sometimes yeah okay <laughs> exactly but uh, so he's, you'll see why with some of these tips that he's got. Mm-hmm. All right. Number one, be ruthless. Well, are you not captivated by a particular book at a particular time? Then on to the next, just stop okay. reading and put them down. We're, we're totally into that idea. Yes. Uh, we've, we've subscribed to that idea many times on the podcast. Yeah. And that's with anything, TV show, movie, uh, video game, whatever. It's ruthless. just like, Yeah. Uh, a boring intro, bad design, or hard, even hard to read font is enough to persuade Cohen to chuck a book. And I, I don't know if I've ever come across that like hard to read, like font that's like a. Uh, I've definitely uh, come across. With me. I've not font, but I've come across books that I like deeply disagree with the like formatting, like either margin size is too large or too small. Like just like an, an overall like what the hell are these people thinking kind of like. <laughs> It usually has something to do with like squeezing pages in, you know, like Bible pages. And it's sure. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, Bible margins. Yeah, I I think I'd rather have skinny margins than the giant ones where it's like a full sheet of paper, but it's like a yes, you know, giant this, giant margins feels middle. like it shouldn't be the book like a book length. 
yeah giant margins is like when they take one like an author's short story and then make it into a full book for no reason yeah just cut it down yeah so that's that's a good one i agree with that one so i want you to give me a thumbs up or thumbs down on these tips all right thumbs up all right next one go ahead and skim at least in the case of nonfiction, if you already know that material, feel, feel free to skip ahead. Thumbs fucking down. <laughs> Skimming is, is like the lowest form of human anything. <laughs> no way. Like, I, I actually, I've said that to people many times that I think that it's one of those things that you don't know until you talk to people about it, but there are actually people like I read in real time. So if somebody is taking their time to say something in the book or there's an ellipsis, like I give that pause, but there are many readers out there who don't consider the kind of like flow of text and they sure. just, and they just skim to kind of like get the message in. No way. I might man. be guilty of that. Like not, not the skimming part, but like the, the pregnant pause or whatever, like not respecting it. <laughs> like no way. I, I respect every, I, I, yeah, I flow with the texts. I definitely <laughs> don't, but I probably the only thing that you should be skimming is like Wikipedia and sure. Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean like that kind of is like a Twitter mindset of just like flip, 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 like just thumbing through mm -hmm. shit. And just picking up on like, oh, I see a word that I recognize that something I like. I think as we get that, deeper yeah. and deeper into this list, we're going to get all of the uh, facts about why this guy thinks that he reads five books a night. Yeah. So here's a, here's a quote from that. When you go to read actual books, you're like, I know that. I know that. I know that. And you keep on going and you read much more quickly. And that's really the way to read a lot, says Cohen. And says this also creates a virtuous cycle in which the more you read, the more you'll know and the more you can skip until you don't have to read anything ever again because you know it all. Is that he that actually? I, no, I added the last I added the last like five words, but he did say the more you can skip. My goodness gracious. Okay. Quite so a, thumbs down on that one. What is Number that? Three. Uh, what is that? The, there's like that famous Buddhist quote, the master or like the knowledgeable man knows that he knows nothing. Yeah, that's not this guy. <laughs> no, I know everything. Sad. Number three, read to solve problems. The best reading is focused reading when you're trying to solve some kind of problem, Cohen believes. You could aim to answer a specific question, investigate a given author, or scratch an itch of curiosity. You want to start with a problem or question when you're reading. He insists. Like, I was, I was like thinking that that was pointless up until the point that he said investigate a given author because i see that like i go into that sometimes where it's like and we've totally done that where it's like oh this is something i've heard about forever it's uh you know the most well-known work from this author and i want to see what they're all about but he's I'm, only I'm not, saving not like thinking that though. he's only saving himself exactly we're of the same mind that's why we're on the same podcast. He's only saving himself by a thread by saying, <laughs> by saying, examining an author. If that wasn't in there, because I was like, okay, so this guy thinks that like pension is useless. This guy think, you know, like it's not, you know, there's no questions being answered. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of reading is the joy of the action. 
Yeah, reading for reading's sake and not like it's yeah. it's not a how to or like a I need to learn something. Yeah. Kind of so thing. I I kind of like this is like that moment in Gladiator when the thumb isn't up or down yet. I'm okay. holding it in the middle. <laughs> All right. He's even for now with one up and one down. Okay. And one neutral. So number four, read in read in clusters. This naturally follows on from the point above. If you arrange your reading around questions or areas of exploration, you'll end up reading multiple books about the same topic. That allows you to do a kind of cross-sectional mental kind of metrics and see which pieces start fitting together. So he didn't save himself there by mentioning like you'll read more from the from the same author and realize what they're all about. So I'm gonna say kind of stuck to like the analytical. I'm gonna say thumbs down because it is too analytical. It's like, oh, you know, it, that sounds like studying. Versus, yeah, it sounds like you're trying to write a paper on it. Right. That's studying versus reading, which is like, I would say almost the opposite. I love if I if I'm forced, not forced, but if my mood takes me in a direction where I want to read two different books, they have to be extremely different. Mm -hmm. Like not to, you know, not two novels from the same country where there might be like some cross, you know, confusion with names or characters or places. It has to be, you know, like a, like a pure fantasy novel. And then like a, you know, realistic kind of, you know, Nobel prize winner or something. Sure. Yeah. I can see that juxtaposition. Yeah. Cause then you don't get anything kind of confused. Yeah. I have like, well, I guess like you could all, you could say if it's like a trilogy or something and you're just like busting through the whole thing at once, like that's different. Yeah. But so, like trilogies are after like a certain period of time, unless you're living in the time that like you're waiting for the second or third book, they usually tend to be considered the same thing. Sure. Like, like Lord of the Rings is like one book, right? It's not really. It is three books, but it's also just the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you don't just watch like one of the movies too. <laughs> you like marathon that shit. Right, exactly. Yeah. You'd never just, just watch the third movie or something. So that gets a thumbs down though for, for not not exploring other ways to... For being too analytical. Yeah. He's definitely trying to like... I feel like a lot of things... In this application yeah i think a lot of things in this list so far have the stench of like uh since reading since we all know that reading is an obligation it's like yeah. <laughs> no it's not <laughs> okay so this one we might be able to get out get down with number five read fiction gathering a stack of non-fiction titles to explore a topic is great but don't neglect fiction Reading fiction is important to understand the cross-sectional variation in humanity, to understand how difficult generalizations can be, to just get a sense of how different social pieces fit together, and to get a sense of different historical areas. And plus, reading fiction is often just plain, flat-out fun. Thumbs up. The very end, he saved himself. He's like... <laughs> Thumbs up. Some, some fictions, like, reads just like a nonfiction. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'll give him credit for that. Yes, thumbs ne up. 
Number six, read books about topics you know nothing about. Again, that's like another nonfiction thing, but every area you don't give a damn about, you probably should read at least one book in because the very best book in that area is superb and you're not going to know what it is. So if tennis is something you don't know anything about, well, read Andre Agassi's mem memoir. That's a wonderful book. You don't have to know about or care about tennis. Or you could read Infinite Jest and cover that same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Get tons of nonfiction tennis in Infinite yeah. Jest. But I do agree with that in a sense. Like I like reading jumping into something like just from the, the aura of it and it's nothing I, I know don't know anything about it or just something snappy catches you and that's that's like usually the the times you're most surprised good or bad but it's nice to not have real expectations going in yes so i'll give them thumbs up on that thumbs up yeah number seven is very simple have fun Take reading seriously, develop a passion for it, and view it as a part of your practice as a knowledge worker ugh, to ugh. get ahead. But along the way, have fun doing so. <laughs> to get ahead? Like, thumbs <laughs> down. I'm going to read this important, you know, soulful, like, you know, what is it? There's like multiple things about how reading fiction makes you more empathetic and like all these different things to develop my mind. But I'm definitely working at it. <laughs> It's like working on the railroad. Yeah, this guy hates reading. Yeah. He probably snaps at people when they interrupt his, like, reading sessions. Mm -hmm. The, like, six hours. He says, like, oh, on a good night, I'll read five books. But it's probably, like, he starts at noon. And, like, he doesn't read five books. <laughs> he skims five books all at the same time and then convinces himself that he's read them. True. What's sad is that there's definitely like uh book reviewers out there that do that too. It's like, they, Oh, cause it's all about just getting the, yeah. the product out. Yeah. Sad. I hate that. I think, I think reviewers in general do that. Like album reviewers, they'll like, you know, judge an album after hearing it, you know, it's been out for like an hour. You got to review it already. There's a lot of uh, they get advanced, but still, when you, you do let it sit. when you do research about like uh, Gravity's Rainbow and stuff, there's a lot of people who proudly proclaim that they haven't read it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, bro. It happens a lot. It's a it's a it's yeah. It's got that that label, but. Oh, well, so hopefully, uh, I don't know which advice of that I'm going to take. Probably just, uh, I'm going to take your advice. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to pace myself with the, with the, uh, speech. With the speech. Well, you know, like I'll pace myself with the book better. Yeah. Reading like in real time. Yeah. Reading in real time, especially in speech, I think is, is pretty important. There's lots of kind of dramatic stuff in there. Um, is that the whole list that you just went through? Yeah. So what was his score in the end? Uh, I think it ended up being uh, three up and f four down, maybe. Okay. Three up. I think it was actually even. Three up, three down, and one neutral. Then I'm switching the neutral to down. <laughs> He's done. I'm going negative. I'm canceling. Okay. 
it's just like everything about that just seems like so you've been like it seems like for whatever reason you want to force yourself to read here's how yeah (laughs) knowledge worker is just a hideous term yeah (laughs) knowledge worker yeah punch your time card (laughs) interesting who was that human's name uh something cohen forget the name uh tyler cohen tyler cohen the lost cohen brother yeah Wow. It's spelled C-O-W-E-N, so not quite. Okay. Cohen. Oh, yeah. All right, Cohen. You're on our list. <laughs> I know. Oh. I mean, if I can read if I could read five books a night, then you know we'll have a podcast every uh every, every three, four hours. <laughs> well, great. you bring up a good, <laughs> you bring up a good point. I know that you're trying to segue into something that we've recently been discussing. Yeah, and you uh, go for it. Go for it. Okay, so attention, listeners of the shitty book reports world. Mark and I have come to a decision, and that decision is that we're going to be a little bit more lenient on ourselves and change the format of the podcast as such that we find that we often stall recording a podcast because we're not done with a book yet. So the latest and greatest format of shitty book reports shall be declared on this day, January 12th, the year 2022, that we don't have to finish the book to discuss it. And in fact, we can discuss what we've been reading over multiple episodes if it is so required. Yeah, exactly. And that opens up a lot of possibilities with actually diving into some uh, more difficult and larger novels, maybe. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So there's it's kind of interesting because we have talked about the ebb and flow of how the podcast has affected our reading in the sense that, you know, oh, there's a great book that I've heard about that I've wanted to read for a while. And then when I physically pick it up, I can see it's only 150 pages like Hallelujah. (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know versus other books that i want to enjoy but are 700 pages and then that seems very daunting yeah and now that can be two three episodes and now that can be two three episodes or even you know i think it also gives a little bit more introspection into the idea that when you make a shitty book report that you only have roughly 30 minutes to talk about uh in a sense we're joining the Cohen camp of skimming. We're skimming the whole topic and kind of saying, here's the author, here's what I thought of the book. You know, I spent a bunch of time doing it in the sense where in future episodes, I look forward to saying, okay, so I'm reading this book and here's where I'm going to discuss one chapter of the book. Um, Now, I don't want to take it to extremes and say, oh, this year I read one book with 52 chapters. Enjoy my description (laughs) of each one, 52 weeks. Yeah, it won't be overkill. It won't be overkill, but I do think that it will um, restrict, uh, take off some of the bonds of of that kind of like requirement. and, And that also delays us, which will hopefully also result in more episodes per month. Sure. Um, which is, which is wonderful. Here's uh, here's something to clear the air. Here's also a question that can go as part of this new format intro. Are you okay. ready? Yeah. 
Marcus Gagne, have you ever done a shitty book report and falsely represented that you finished the book when you did not? I I think there was only one. Okay. And I think it was... Uh, I have one as well, so this is a safe <laughs> space. <laughs> I can't remember which one it was, though. You go first. Let me think about it. My book that I did not completely finish and falsely represented that I did finish it. Although I will say I want to hold on with the with you know with one finger on the edge of the cliff of the reading pantheon. <laughs> I think I think I did read much farther than most people did. <laughs> but when at the time that we recorded the podcast, I had not finished Moby Dick. Oh, I good. was I was probably ninety percent. Long one, no. Ninety percent, big book, hard to get through, and a lot of people complain. Oh, I stopped reading when it became a textbook, but I read through a lot of the textbook parts. I just had about ten percent to go and decided to record. Interesting. But that won't be an issue anymore. I'll be able yeah. to just come out and say it's not over yet. That sounds good. You know, you know which one I think it is for me. Hmm. I think I skipped the end of, uh, or I like skimmed through the end of uh, Room with a View by Ian Forster. Room with a View. I think I was like, I know where this is kind of going, and I'm not. I wasn't mm -hmm. crazy about it, but I think that was the one. Okay. I don't even remember that one. <laughs> it was a while ago. Let's see it. when. When did I? Uh, I'm looking at the text file from my. Uh, two years ago, <laughs> January 2020. That's forgivable. So that's the yeah, statu statute. That's the statute of limitations. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, yeah. So that's well, the new uh, format. Hopefully, it will result in getting more episodes out to you guys, and I think it's going to work. I think it's going to work nicely. Yeah, I'm I think it's also going to result in a few filler episodes for Trevor via Proust. Okay, because I mean, honestly, that's another thing. You know how I adore Proust, and I just I'm not going to go back in because I'm like, well, I can't read the whole thing in one in you know one go or whatever. Yeah, you um, can revisit. So I can revisit and do some little chunks here and there, and I think it's gonna I think it's gonna work out good. Plus, you know, lots of shitty book reports are based on, you know, just sections of books. <laughs> yeah. I know. We we tend to sometimes do that anyways. We'll just focus in on the parts we like the most. So, yeah. Onward and upward. Yeah, exactly. So uh, excited about that. Let's kick it off the year nicely. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm going first today. I fi did finish a book. Nice. <laughs> so off to a good start. Uh, so here we go. So science fiction. Yes. You know how there are many people who just can't get into it. Correct. I'm going to play an audio clip here. And this is what I imagine those people are feeling when they're trying to tackle hard sci-fi. Ready? Mm-hmm. Rockwell Automation's retroencabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, 
It's produced by the modial interaction of magnetoreluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fan. The lineup consisted simply of six hydrocoptic marzal veins, so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. Nice. The main winding was of the normal lotus o deltoid type placed in panendermic semi-boloid slots of the stator. Every seventh Getting conductor it. being connected by a non-reversible tremie pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the gram meters. Moreover, whenever fluorescent score motion is required, it may also be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocation dingle arm Perfect. to reduce sinusoidal depleneration. A dingle arm? The retroid calculator <laughs> has now reached a high level of development, and it's being successfully used in the operation of Milford Trenions. It's available soon, wherever Rockwell Automation products are sold. <laughs> so, uh, defrabulating dingle arm. That's, that's a classic video from the days of E-Bombs world called uh, Technobabble. Right. It's like I think I've seen that. Yeah, it's like yeah, a guy yeah. in a suit walking in front of a machine. <laughs> yeah, he's just opening doors on this machine. He's like, <laughs> Marzal veins. <laughs> but that's how I feel a lot of people like view sci-fi. They're like, right. it's like, it goes back to that um that letter that, uh what's his name, wrote Raymond Chandler mm -hmm. about like, he just made up all this shit and he's just right. making fun of sci-fi. There's it's also like fresh. There's, yeah, there's like famous genre. quotes from the... um that I've seen footage or whatever of the cast of Star Wars, like their initial auditions where it's like Lucas just being like, just say these like weird things. And they're like, what yeah. the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, they had to be introduced at some point. And yeah, um, it's that's it's a staple of sci-fi is, you know, inventing new terms and, mm -hmm. you know, imagining things and you got to give it a name so but so what i read this week is obviously sci-fi it's mm -hmm. considered a sci-fi classic it's very highly awarded credited with um pioneering a, a whole new genre within sci-fi although Can I make it's a, a little bit fuzzy i want to make a guess before you say go for it because not only are you combining the idea of like uh invention of vocabulary like glossary terms and stuff but you're talking about sci-fi and the heaviest book that i've ever read that had to do with like learning terms that the author made up in sci-fi was dune okay did you read dune that, no i did not <laughs> okay <laughs> but that is very true yeah it has a glossary in the back and it's one of the ones that you actually like kind of have to use yeah so what what uh what subgenre would you consider uh Dune to be in sci-fi? <sighs> I wouldn't call it too much of a subgenre unless I was calling it like you know the subgenre of like it's sci-fi but it's veiled Christianity. Sure. <laughs> like a, probably, I think they're they that, have that's a, what, probably assigned a, a genre to it or a that's name. what Narnia is right. That's what, it's yeah. like a it's like a religious subtext. Yeah. Fantasy sci-fi. That's what I would say. Okay. Uh how about some other sci-fi subgenres? Well, there's sort of like space there's opera. like space opera, right? Yeah, there's space opera. There's also like you mentioned kind of in the intro, like 
your intro hard sci-fi where it's like yeah. mixed with facts yeah like a lot of uh real science yeah and i and like arthur c Clarke is very much he only has like one toe in the water of that it's usually like a whole novel based on one kind of like semi-real theory sure um so yeah hard sci-fi Really dystopian dystopia yeah oh, god huge. put a bullet in my head <laughs> too many yeah uh, if I'll... i if i read see or play one more thing that's about post-apocalyptic blah 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 except for dying light too which is going to come out in like a couple weeks you got to play yes that will be fun yeah uh there's god also damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh alternate history stuff like that you got steampunk but what I'm Steve talking about Punk, yeah. today is uh, Cyberpunk. Ooh, Cyberpunk. Like another video game that was right. uh, underrated. Underrated so, and overrated. At the same time, yeah. The so hardest what does, achievements. <laughs> what does Cyberpunk mean to you? What is that genre? Sum it up. Cyberpunk to me means like it's like the future and it's dirty and gritty, but technology hasn't like destroyed everything it's just become like synonymous with life so it's like it's not like oh it's like a wasteland and everything sucks like like that it's more that technology is so integrated into our lives that you know your girlfriend is a robot or whatever and no <laughs> one no one you know makes a second glance or whatever sure that's cyberpunk to me Okay. And and yeah. also like a little like an element is sort of like ultra violence, right? Like it's gonna be like violent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a little bit out of control. Yeah. Akira is cyberpunk. No. Yeah. yeah. I agree. And uh so it's right around that time. Uh this is a book that came out in nineteen eighty-four. Okay. But yeah, with, with a lot of sci-fi authors, I would qualify them as, you know, people who have excellent, unique ideas, but the execution is almost never what I would call, like, literature or, mm -hmm. you know. Do you call it all cyberpunk or sci-fi? Uh, no, uh, I'm just talking about sci-fi. Like, I, I have a different kind of relationship with sci-fi where I view it as a, you know, separate from literature most of the time it's it's mm -hmm. tough though mm -hmm. i don't want to be a huge critic but that's just how i've personally felt throughout my reading history of it but mm -hmm. for this episode i read the 1984 nebula award uh philip k dick award and hugo award winning debut novel a neuromancer by william gibson Ooh, neuromancer yeah this one's very popular in uh sci-fi community it's... what was the first book that you read on the podcast uh i read uh oakley hall warlock yeah for some reason those two are like interconnected <laughs> in my brain but, i don't yeah. know yeah what neuromancer warlock <laughs> i was like oh what okay continue all right um yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to summarize the plot, but it's it's sort of a convoluted story, and that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why a lot of people can't get into it. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's a very um, celebrated story, but it's also at the same time has a lot of detractors because it's 
it's deep sci-fi it's deep techno babble like <laughs> you know but i can't and i'm not sure if it was inspired by i think it's inspired by uh blade runner okay. but it's you know an alternate kind of take on that sort of style so you got uh this guy henry case main character he's a hacker nice. in the future japan which is of course, when you when you think of the cyberpunk genre, that's the coolest thing you can be. You know, <laughs> you're a hacker, like because mm -hmm. it, it's always seems to be like more of a physical thing than it should be. Somehow, it's not like some weak computer nerd. You're always like a <laughs> badass, like <laughs> I don't know, Neo from the Matrix. Yeah, and exactly. That's funny that you mentioned that because, uh, he is a disgraced hacker of what's called the Matrix. And that's yeah. this is the book that coined that term for like a cyber universe. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So the you know very influential novel even just for that, just terms. Mm -hmm. Um. So he was a hacker. He was working for this company, and he was he was caught stealing by his former employer, and they made it so that he could for his punishment they made it that he could no longer access the matrix they you know uh fried his neurons or whatever you want to say <laughs> to yeah. uh make it so that he could no longer enter the his, matrix his dingle arm yeah his defrabulating dingle arm and then in comes uh mysterious character molly millions and she's she's a biohacker which is like you know the the whole body modification aspect mm -hmm. to like the cyberpunk universe right, right where she's got like razor blades implemented into her body yeah and like a camera eye and stuff like yeah that. yeah so she's a biohacking mercenary and she kind of works for like a shadow government figure uh and she so she wants to hire him as a rogue hacker to basically recapture her find you know the digital identity of some other legendary hacker and from there you know i'm a little unsure like i said it's it's a kind of a convoluted story there's like a powerful <laughs> i read this book but i'm <laughs> unsure <laughs> i mean i can I, there's a there's a confrontation with like a powerful ai which is the neuromancer it's like half half of uh, some super ai mm -hmm. um so henry basically he has to jack into cyberspace to to uh confront this and you know retrieve mm. the um uh like digital consciousness of this guy and you know the well the whole time the story can be like a little bit too techno babblish but the whole time it does remain very cool you mm. know that's one of the things about the genre is that it's like always like something sick was happening at the moment <laughs> <laughs> you know? right and you know it jumps around a ton and like you said ultra violence there's a lot of violence than uh sex and violence in this book but it's not like high tier fiction to me story wise as far as the execution but mm. again very cool ideas and um like concepts and that's you know that's what i that's what i look for when i'm trying when i'm reading a book like this really mm -hmm. uh here's a here's a quick taste of some of some of the writing the Matrix has its roots in primitive arcade games, said the voiceover, in early graphics programs and military experimentation with cranial jacks. On the Sony, a two-dimensional space war faded behind a forest of mathematically generated ferns, demonstrating the spatial possibilities of logarithmic spirals. 
cold blue military footage burned through, lab animals wired into test systems, helmets feeding into fire control circuits of tanks and warplanes, cyberspace, a consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of legitimate operators in every nation, by children being taught mathematical concepts, a graphic representation of data abstracted from the banks of every computer in the human system, unthinkable complexity, lines of light ranged in the non-space of the mind, clusters and constellations of data like city lights receding. Nice. So, you know, it's like a vision of the future from literally written in 1984. And like, I guess people tend to sometimes compare it to 1984, but I don't really see that. It's like a glimpse into the, to the future or whatever. But here we are, here we are in 2022. And the reality of what we have as far as uh, the Matrix is, I guess, a new Matrix movie just came out. (laughs) New Matrix movie (laughs) and then the metaverse. I was going to, that's the next thing I was going to say. The the dumbest thing I've ever seen, the Facebook (laughs) metaverse, so far away from the cool imaginings of the past, dude. Well, what's funny about metaverse, though, too, is like people are fascinated by it. And it's like, do you like, do you know second life do you know what that is yeah they, yeah. they had it in the office like, it's the same fucking thing it is that's it's what's digital, so it's so dumb and that's like, what's the way so they funny presented about it. it the way it's they like, presented it as like being a you could attend a meeting at work like digitally right. it's so stupid yeah but it looks like shitty minecraft yeah i cannot believe that um a lot of people buying into it right now, though. A lot of people. I read an article that there was a $4.8 million digital real estate sale in the metaverse. Yeah. Because there's like a finite amount of like server space and some company was like, we're slapping down $5 million so people can like come chill. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, but it's also like digital real estate as far as that second earth. <laughs> that, have you heard of that? The Earth 2.0? It was like a kind of like a stock market thing. Maybe, like a, but I don't think I heard about Earth 2.0, but it's just I, I just think it's fascinating because it seems like these people just don't even know what Second Life is. Like it already <laughs> it already exists in a very shitty form. <laughs> and it's like just rehashing news articles of like, can you believe that these people make digital items for real world currency? And it's like, that's what Second Life has been since like 1995 yeah but okay i know it's the worst nfts are the worst i hate it so all so much but (laughs) that's part of it um but yeah so that's that's essentially a breakdown of what this book is it's very if you want to read like highly stylized like cool scene descriptions from like the blade runner type universe and then you know the characters are little hollow and Mm -hmm. the plot is again convoluted but it's not a chore to read like it's it is Mm -hmm. it is fun to read but just skim past the parts that you feel you already know yeah if i uh, like i i know what half the stuff is so i (laughs) okay but uh, so one of the best descriptions, in, instead of doing a one-star review, I'm going to do, uh, uh, I think, a three-and-a-half-star review first, and then a okay. one-star. Because I saw one of the best descriptions I have read uh, of this book, taken from Goodreads, 
where someone said it was, quote, too full of geometrical jargon and tricky to focus on in place, like reading while jumping on a trampoline. <laughs> Oh, nice. But but Gibson should be awarded top marks for daring to be different and for churning out future fabulous phrases such as cyberspace, Microsofts, and the Matrix when even Bill Gates and his future megacorp were still in metaphorical short pants. <laughs> so yeah, just Pretty like, good. you know, dreaming about a different world is cool. And just saying like, oh, you know, expanding beyond human possibility and like, I think you, you should get, he definitely deserves a lot of credit for that. And like reinvigorating the sci-fi genre in a, in a, you know, unique way. Nice. But to continue uh, with the Goodreads, I got a one-star review here from user Frida Anderson, who gave five stars to the Count of Monte Cristo. So there's like a basis of trust here. Uh, but her review is, I was completely miserable reading this. The only thing I know about the story's plot is what I got from the text in the back of the book. There's so much techno babble that it's impossible to tell what's going on. And new terminology is introduced all the time. So you don't have a chance to learn either. There you go. Yeah. So I would say worth the read. Um, I know there's some other uh, highly regarded books from William Gibson. And I think he's like, I think he's like an active guy on like Twitter. He's still, he's um adopted mm. to the, he's jacked into the matrix. Social media trends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he should get some sort of like kickback for the matrix movies for mentioning, what did he say? Cranial jacks. Yeah. Yeah. He deserves something. He's got, he needs some licensing money come in for that or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Would you consider uh, 12 Monkeys as cyberpunk, right? Or is that just yes. like... Yeah, yeah totally. The movie rules. Totally. Yeah, 12 Monkeys is good. Yeah. Cool. So that's Fine. it. What do you got? That's it. All right. So one of the reasons, like I said uh, in the intro, that it is kind of freeing to be able to come to the podcast with a book that you haven't necessarily finished. I'm about a hundred pages away from finishing the book that I'm about to talk about. Yeah. Um, and it's that whole idea of splitting the attention too, because I actually, um, I was reading this book for a while. Then I went on a fabulous Christmas vacation with my wife to Hawaii. And I think you'll see when I start describing this book that I didn't necessarily want to read it on the beach. So I switched to another book. <laughs> Uh, in the middle. So that's why I'm saying I'm ridiculously far ahead of you in terms of reading, but not necessarily <laughs> in the traditional sense. So I've got two books going on right now that are polar opposites, but I'm far into each of them. That's cool. Um, so I'm taking another dive into um, Russian literature uh, this week with um, Mikhail Sholohov's book quiet flows the dawn have you ever heard of this novel no this is new to me right new to me too um it's definitely one of those things i have a i have a vintage i have a vintage used copy that cost me four dollars god knows where i can't even remember where i bought it now 
Um, but you know, it's like, oh, uh, it's kind of that concept I talked about uh, when I was talking about Peter Straub, where it's like, if this is like the old beat up copy of a Russian novel that made it to this like American bookshop, like in the classic section, then it's probably like the cream of the crop, you know, because yeah. there's like so many copies of it out there that this is like, <laughs> you know, common or whatever. Sure. But, but it's but still an author I've never heard of. So Quiet Flows the Dawn. There's a lot to say about this book. One is kind of funny in my research because I have a I have an old I have a used copy that's from Vintage Books. And I think my copy, I don't know. I can't. You know how sometimes you can't tell from that like information in the front exactly when it was printed. Oh, this is an edition from 1966. Um, but it was originally originally published by Sholahov, uh, I think somewhere in the twenties. It was published in like, and now it's collected into one book. But it was one of those things that came out in like three different sections. So then he finished a fourth section like a few years later, okay. and now it's all one book. But what's funny about the translation of my edition, which I only learned now researching for the podcast, is by this guy Stephen Gary. And the very first thing in Wikipedia says, Gary's translation lacks about 25% of the novel. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks a lot, Stephen Gary. You fucked me over with taking 25% of the book out. But let's talk about the book itself. So the Don River is a river in Russia, but also like through part like through Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. And do you know the term? cossacks yes like who they like they are vaguely somewhere in your mind like this tribal people the cossacks who yep. are part of the ukrainian territory and they have a rich uh kind of military history that is all tangled up in russian history so sholahov was somebody, he was born in 1905. So he's six years younger than Alfred Hitchcock. And he is somebody who was born along the Don River, but he wasn't a Cossack. He was part of like a group of people called that they like labeled as outlanders from the Cossacks. So he was sort of like knows their culture but lives kind of on the outside of that. And he goes on to be sort of like, you know, someone who, you know, despite, you know, all odds of like his father was, um, you know, lower middle class. He was a farmer. He was a cattle trader, blah, blah, blah. His mother was the widow of a Cossack. So like basically, you know, she had had another family or whatever. But he goes on to become sort of like an educated, like goes to multiple schools throughout Moscow and Russia and Ukraine. And he kind of just, you know, is a famous guy. So he writes and he writes from a very young age. And also something that's like sort of fascinating is he uh, he joins uh, like a military conflict and he is part of the Bolshevik side of the Russian Civil War when he's 13. Okay. So it's kind of like that concept of people used to live faster. For than, sure, yeah. Than us because they weren't staring at Instagram or whatever. <laughs> they were forced so, to. Yeah. So 
Quiet Flows the Dawn. Let's talk about the the context of the actual book and and the the kind of uh, stuff around it. First of all, in 1965, much after Quiet Flows the Dawn, which was originally published in 1928, in 1965, Sholahov wins the Nobel Prize in Literature. So I guess that's why he's still on the used bookshelf because he won the Nobel Prize. Okay. Yeah, that'll uh, that'll get you there for this book specifically, um, which I didn't know at the time when I picked up the book. I just saw a Russian author, Quiet Flows the Dawn. And of course, when I brought it home, my wife was like, oh, everyone in Russia and Ukraine. Knows <laughs> no, of it's just like something that you're required to read in high school, but you hate it, you know, and it's pretty <laughs> long. Ask. It's like 800 pages long it's, or 700 or something like that, depending on how it's, you know, how it's published. But um, so Quiet Flows the Dawn, it is, and I'll read straight from Wikipedia. It depicts the lives and struggles of the Don Cossacks during the First World War, the Russian Revolution, and the Russian Civil War. So it's that kind of interesting. I, of course, I was fascinated as soon as I started reading it because I've told you before, having been awoken by Downton Abbey and reading Proust, it's that Americans, you know, know nothing about the early 20th century and the turn of like World War One. Basically, we like don't know anything about it. Yeah. So to read even more about it is more is fascinating. So I was, of course, delighted when that when the book first started. But I will say that without having no context of the book, it was hard to pin down exactly when the book was happening until they started naming specific years and dates within the book. Because, you know, when I say the tribal people, the Cossacks of the Don River, you imagine something that's probably more dated than what is actually occurring in this book, right? Yeah, for sure. It seems so ancient. You, you imagine people who are like fighting the fucking Khan on horses, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, like because of the kind of vocabulary around their, their whole society. But really, this is, you know, starting around 1912, just prior to World War One. So even though there are Cossacks and they have like, oh, we refer to our homes as huts and stuff like that, they had, you know, cast iron stoves <laughs> you know they were they were you know just like the rest of the world but called cossacks and in yeah. the countryside um what was great about the beginning of this book and what kind of like drew me in and i suspect draws a lot of people in is that at first it kind of just seemed like a a countryside drama about human relationships um there's a family of course it's just like any other russian novel where there's a lot of names and three or four different families where you're like holy shit um you know what's going on keeping track of it all yeah <laughs> yeah and it's just like absolutely crazy um sorry i just read something on wikipedia that i didn't see before that ruined something for me in the last uh -oh. hundred pages of the book <laughs> but i guess that's the perils of the new of the new format yeah. um so yeah, what really draws you in is like, there's these families and they, there's a lot of human drama. There's a lot of like this person slept with that person or this person is sleeping with that guy's wife. And at first it kind of just almost seemed like a melodrama, you know, like I didn't. And that's what, that's another great thing about going in with zero expectations, right? Mm -hmm. Is that at first when I was reading it, I was just kind of like, oh, this book is sort of like, you know, 
a soap opera of people in the you know Ukrainian countryside just like getting off with each other or whatever. Yeah, you and then see the, the pivot. Yes, and then obviously the pivot comes when there is the First World War, uh, and then it kind of flows into the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War, which is all very interesting from this particular perspective of the Cossacks, because in a way, it's not like, you know, when you read Dostoevsky or something, you know, which is from a different time period, but it's it's stuff that you vaguely heard about, but from a very kind of different perspective. Like, for instance, did you know that the Tsar Nicholas II and his whole family was like killed? You heard uh, of that? Yeah, I think history. I remember that from Russian history class. Right. Um, so, yeah, so... Tsar Nicholas II, his whole family was like, you know, they stormed the palace. It's like one of the most famous, like, wow, they killed the king kind of thing. They killed the czar of any country in the world. Like, they basically round up his family and just killed them all, which is, you know, as like a revolutionary act. Um, and what's interesting about this book is like, if you know that and you know that historical context, it's like, and this is the kind of thing that fits with me that I like is... You know, when I was talking about Solzhenitsyn and I hate when they have scenes where it's like, and then Stalin went and took a shit or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hate that. I hate historical fiction like that. And what was great about this is like that event happens. But the only way that you hear about it is like the Cossacks get a telegram when they're on the front of another war that they're having at the time in Austria. So it's sort of like, oh, the country starts to fall apart, but it's like you're in the trenches with these Cossack soldiers who are fighting side by side with other Russian forces. They're almost in they almost seem almost kind of like mercenaries in a way. They have their own government, but then they also kind of like listen to the empire slash the czar. But that's like interesting, right? Like what's going to happen with these this kind of like fringe, not really fringe society, but like another part of their society where it's like um, the czar was killed <laughs> and uh, you're supposed to take your orders from this guy. And they're like, well, wait a second. Like that guy's not the guy anymore. Like the empire is changing. Like who do we listen to? And there's a lot of really cool stuff like that that develops also, you know, Obviously, okay, so this book is famous in the time of Sholokhov's life, right? So what do you think, it, if, if you think, if you could hazard a guess, do you think that this is pro-communist or anti-communist? At the time? Yeah. Hmm. He's a famous Russian in the Soviet Union. At the time, uh, pro. Yes. So he's pro. He's like, you know, as the novel develops, it's like, the because the Russian Civil War eventually becomes in very extremely broad terms like white versus red, you know, like the red Bolsheviks versus like, you know, the people who supported the empire, like like basically Tsarist Russia. Yeah. And um, it's interesting, like little kind of th he weaves little things into the characters where it's like, well, yeah, like this guy who's in the machine gun unit. It's like, you know, he's been reading these like articles and like passing them around that are by this guy named Lenin. <laughs> and like you know and it's like oh are you bolshevik or are you not and and it was also interesting to read at a time like this you know in america where it's like you know you go to thanksgiving dinner and you're and it's like you know oh yeah like uncle terry you know he's he's a little bit make america great again <laughs> and and there's there's stuff like that in here too where it's sort of like that you know the father is proud of the son for rising up through the ranks of the army but then 
you know, in the 11th hour when he's like, yeah, I'm a Bolshevik. Like I believe in, you know, like the right of the people. And the dad's like, well, I'm not really proud of you. Anymore. Yeah. You're, like, radi- you're yeah, radicalized. You're a radical like piece of shit. And uh, so there's a lot of kind of like interfamily kind of like politics going on inter kind of society politics. And it's really cool just to like have that kind of in the trenches kind of experience. And you do care about the characters too. Like the main character, Gregor, Greg, Grigory Melikov is like you go along his life journey. And, and there's a lot of people, especially from like you learn from that first section when they're all just kind of sleeping with each other, like mm-hmm. who's an asshole and who isn't. And like Grigory's like kind of an asshole. Like he cheats on his wife. He goes to live with another woman. He thinks like he's so great. Oh, I'm going to establish my new life with this like lieutenant of the of the czarist army who, you know, is so great. And we're all rich now. And I'm, I'm kind of rubbing shoulders in high society. And then it's like, yeah, well, what's going to happen when the shit hits the fan? Mm-hmm. And it does. Um, and it's kind of interesting, you know, who betrays who, who's kind of, so it's all that human drama kind of mixed in. Another thing that's great. I think one of the like kind of more kind of artful areas of the book, aside from, development of historical context giving you all this context and all these characters and stuff uh the whole novel and quiet flows the dawn it is like intersected like almost every like there's these big like dramatic things that happen even like you know someone you know some like the women characters are treated horribly and you know someone you know gets you know raped or something or like there's like this horrible and there's a lot of violence in the book that is extremely realistic like holy shit realistic and then, or like something will happen in the war where someone's arm gets cut off and he's like screaming like a wild animal or whatever. And then the next chapter kind of cuts very starkly. And it's like, and the dawn was like this color and like flowing and beautiful. And, you know, it, it has those kind of like contrasts. And I, and I think that in a way, I think that's a theme through this guy's whole career because a lot of his other books, Quiet Flows the Dawn is far and away his biggest book. But some of his other books are like, the silent dawn, you know, <laughs> the, like the dawn does this, the dawn does that, you know, like whatever. So he's that connected. must be when he was writing, he right? Would just write at uh, around that time and just take a look outside, be like inspired. Yeah. So he's he's kind of all about that region in that area. Another really fascinating thing that came up in the research of today for the podcast was um, you may recall that I read a book by Schulzenitsen. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn that's who I was just talking about how he's like he thinks he's such a smarty pants because he'll write that Stalin is a character in the book or whatever and um, there's something really interesting about Quiet Flows the Dawn and that's that Solzhenitsyn and other people who are famous Russians claim that Sholokhov did not write this book (laughs) who do they think it was they claim that he stole the manuscript from a uh, another Cossack writer who died of a disease during the war in 1920. And they basically have this huge conspiracy theory that he did not write a single word and that it's all taken. And there's been multiple studies, including people who say, no, he did write it, and multiple people who come forward with evidence and say, no, he didn't. Um, as far as I can tell, I think Sholokhov wrote it. One of the things that kind of puts me off of Sholzhenitsyn's theory, one, is that Quiet Flows the Dawn is better than Sholzhenitsyn's books. 
So that's, you know, one thing. But then the other thing is that his like main essay on it, which I clicked into online, his main essay, he was like, the thing is, because Solokov uh, publishes the first parts of this book when he's very young, right? When he's like 22 or 23 or something. And Solzhenitsyn says he's too inexperienced to have written something so beautiful. <laughs> and that's just, you know, come on, don't be a little shithead. Boomer. You know? Yeah, he's a boomer. He's being a boomer and it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, whatever we all know my, you know, one of my favorite authors, Mishima, he wrote when he was super young, no one's coming out and being like, you are too young to be so great. Um, so that kind of put me off the whole thing. He doesn't really come at it with evidence. Some people have come at it with evidence, but you know, Schultz needs to just kind of shitting his pants because he's Salieri to, <laughs> you know, Mozart or whatever. Yeah. So what do you um, think? Uh, I mean, can it be confirmed by reading his other uh, novels? To see well, that's what that's what some people say, because he he 100 percent published a novel before Quiet Flows the Dawn when he was like even younger, like 19 or something like that. And people were like, yeah, it's similar. Like you can see his style developing. And there's also, you know, all the typical bullshit of like, well, there was like a someone who had inherited his manuscript that didn't come forward with it until the 80s. And then they <laughs> and then they and then they kind of analyze that and they say yes. And then some other person analyzes and says no. And, you know, it's all bullshit like that. But I think I'm going to give it the credit to Sholokhov. There's lots of stuff to go into that I can't go into, you know, because within, you know, 30 minutes on the podcast. But, you know, looking back, you know, hindsight is 2020. You know, Sholokhov, he wasn't. He was a critic of Stalin, but he also spent time with Stalin. He also spent time with, you know, a few of the Soviet leaders and stuff. And he wasn't exactly, you know, oh, you're evil or whatever. But he did he did write some letters that got people out of prison. And he also kind of spoke up to Stalin and said, you know, like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, you know, a few times using his fame to kind of mold things in a way. But, you know, like I said, hindsight is twenty twenty. He was obviously deeply Soviet. He won like lots of Soviet awards and, you know, he and Quiet Flows the Dawn is very kind of like pro-Bolshevik. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the book, too, where it's like, you know, the idealism of it is what they wanted, but it's not what they got. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's very interesting, very interesting book, very fascinating to see how the politics of the book evolved. I will definitely be reading the last 100 pages. It's very addicting to read. Um, I feel like I've been rambling on too long a little bit, but I am going to read one section of the book that will give you a flavor, not only of the human drama, but also how he describes the, the region. Um, and it's a passage that I came upon pretty recently. It's towards the end of the book. This is when Gregor Melikov has already been in two or three different war-like conflicts. He goes from the front in Austria to, you know, fighting within their own country and within their own ranks. And then and then he's also embroiled in the conflict of, you know, uh, civil war. And he's coming back home. Uh, this is a paragraph from what's happening. Okay. He was broken by wariness engendered of the war. He wanted to turn back upon all the tempestuous, hate-filled, hostile, and incomprehensible world. Behind him, everything was entangled, contradictory. With difficulty, he had found the right path. But as soon as he had set foot upon it, the ground had risen up beneath him and the path had dwindled to nothing. And he had lost all confidence that he was on the right course. He had drawn towards the Bolsheviks, had led others after him, then had hesitated. His heart had turned cold. Who are we to trust? 
But when he thought that soon it would be time to get the harrows ready for spring, mangers would have to be woven of willows, and that when the earth was unclothed and dry, he would be driving out into the steppe, his labor-yearning hands gripping the plow handles when he remembered that soon he would be breathing in the sweet scent of the young grass and the damp-smelling earth turned over by the plowshare, his heart warmed within him. He longed to collect the cattle, to toss the hay, to smell the withered scent of the clover, the twitch, the pungent smell of dung. He wanted peace and quietness, and so his harsh eyes nursed a, cons a constrained gladness as they gazed at the step, at the horses, and at his father's back. Everything reminded him of his half-forgotten former life, the scent of sheepskin from his father's coat, the homely appearance of the ungroomed horses, and a cock crowing from some farmyard. Life here in this retirement seemed sweet and heavily intoxicating. Uh, so yeah, there's lots of little descriptions like that where it's idealized farm-like life, Cossack kind of countryside life mixed with insane, unbridled violence, um, <laughs> which is tough to read. I mean, there's a lot of, there's even a lot, like I said, the female characters are often treated very harshly in this book. That's a criticism that pe modern readers have, which is of course valid, but there's like, you know, there's stuff on the human drama side of things it's like you know gregor he's no sweetheart or whatever it's like he yearns so for being back on the farm but it's like this the woman that he cheated on that's like the mother of his child when he leaves for the war or whatever and he's gone for two years it's like she gets taken advantage of by other cossacks and she there's this absolutely heart-wrenching brutal scene where she takes you know how you like use a scythe to cut grass yeah she takes a scythe blade off of the handle and tries to commit suicide by laying down on top of it. Oh, but, she, but she just deforms herself and it's like fucked. It's like there's stuff like that with just bone chilling. Um, and it's people that you actually like her name is Natalia. Like I like relate to the female character sometimes as much as the male characters. And it's like people who you get connected to and he's pretty brutal. Um so yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. Very, very crazy. So so how are you feeling about it with, uh, you said about 100 pages to go? I can't wait to read the end. I mean, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting. I think a lot of the stuff has kind of gone past, but I'm looking for that Murakami moment up to the yeah. final moment where it will feel like, like kind of summed up. One weakness that I would say is that probably about 75% of the way through, it does become like a war book. You know, like this, yeah. this, this troop went there and that troop went there. And it's like, oh, who gives a shit? Um, but for the most part, amazing. I have a one star review in front of me from Goodreads. Lots of stuff in Goodreads that is the one star review is, you know, people saying, oh, it's propaganda. It's communist, blah, blah, it's bullshit. I mean, that's fair enough to say. But also, like I said, this this guy was heavily idealized into the idea that the Soviet Union was going to work. <laughs> so you have to kind of like, you can't just be here in 2021 being like, you didn't know you moron. Um, Cause he's a great, great writer. Interesting, interesting writer. But Sean Holland rated it one stars on Goodreads. He says, I'm finally free. I'm not bothering with a proper <laughs> review. This book has stolen enough of my time. <laughs> <laughs> so. He went down with the ship. Uh, he went down with the ship though, but yeah, no. It. It was uh, it's a good book. I would I would not say I'm finally free. I re I was returning several times to read this book instead of watching or playing. Are you sure he's not a Russian 
middle schooler or high schooler. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know. Well, wait, wait, what was his name? It was uh, Sean Holland. He doesn't seem probably not. He doesn't <laughs> seem like he's in the Russian public school system. <laughs> so. All right. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, no, it was it's very good. And he was he's really good. Hopefully he is the one who read, who wrote it because he got all the credit. Yeah. <laughs> Probably too late cool. to do, for it to be any different, but yeah, exactly. They're all dead now, so now we now we can just talk about it. Yeah. Um, thanks everyone for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. We're hoping to get more episodes to you more quickly with our new format of not caring if we finish the book or not in true Shitty Book Reports fashion. So um, you can find us everywhere, including Spotify, Soundcast, Twitchers. No, Everything. we're not on Twitcher. Are we on Twitcher? Stitcher? St Stitcher. Stitcher. Okay. We could do our idea on Twitch and just read. Read on Twitch in real time. <laughs> yes, exactly. That would be really popular. Public domain. And whatever, yeah. uh, we hope to see you next time. Sounds great. See ya. <laughs>